Hello everybody and welcome to Flex in the City. I'm Rachel Treese from FTS Global and I am delighted to have Nazia Zubari who hails from East London. Um, were you born in the hearing of the Bow Bells? Hi Rachel, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. Um, are, no, you a proper, not... are you a Cockney is the question. Um, I guess I was born a Cockney. I think when I go and see my brothers who still live in East London, um, uh -huh. we do degenerate into a bit of all oh, white mate, nice one in it occasionally. Um, <laughs> But I think I've lost some of that accent as I've gone through my career. You most certainly have. So I'm very, very curious if you could tell our listeners a little bit about um, your story and, and how you ended up in Luxembourg. Oh, yeah. OK, sure. No problem at all. Um, as you say, I was born and brought up in London. I spent most of my uh, life and studies um, at the University of London School of Economics and um, started work in the financial services sector after leaving university. Um, I was hell-bent on changing the way banks did risk management by using Bayesian calculus and qualitative data. Oh, you're a real mathematician, aren't you? Oh, I loved maths. I nearly went on to study a master's in nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory. Wow. But, uh, somebody <laughs> tempted me with too much cash at the age of 21 and I joined a bank. Um, wow. Actually, I didn't join a bank. That's a lie. Sorry, I didn't join a bank initially. I went to work for Reuters initially. Mm. Um, and anyway, I, you know, I stayed at Reuters for about a year and a half, was then headhunted into another role at a company called EBS Dealing Resources, which is probably the best kept secret in financial services. EBS Dealing Resources is probably the biggest exchange that has ever existed on this planet. I mean, at its peak, about it processed about $220 billion of trading volume on a daily basis. It was the, the core interbank FX dealing system. So used by all the uh, banks around the world, 900 institutions to trade foreign exchange. Um, and I spent a good eight and a half years there designing and enhancing their technologies and their trading systems. Um, it took me to New York. It took me to Tokyo, to Singapore, then back to London. We sold that business in 2006. Um, after a year of vesting, I then stuck up my hand and said, I want to actually go and work for a bank now. And um, it's only in hindsight that this term has really sort of matured in my mind as to what actually happened was basically I was a flash boy. I was hired by RBS to set up their high frequency trading desk. Um, leveraging my know-how of how exactly the exchange worked so that we could trade and we did trade about 12, 12 billion dollars a day um, where I was basically leveraging the uh, technology um, arbitrage on the system that I designed previously to make pretty much riskless profit actually so it was a good heyday but Unfortunately, I found it all very boring. And then um, to cut a long story short, Fred Goodwin was a complete and utter plonker. Um, <laughs> the ABN AMRO takeover was nuts. Um, we could all smell that something was wrong. And quite honestly, I wasn't learning anything anymore. And I was a bit bored. So I applied to go to business school, went off to business school in 2008, just before everything went to hell. Came out, markets were still in crisis. So I decided to move to Bali. Went there, stayed there, did some property investment for a while, moved back to London after a bit, and then started consulting at banks. And that's where I first saw an opportunity for a, a business. And I set up my first entrepreneurial venture in 2011. Mm. And again, just to jump around and cut it a bit short, um, set up a few other businesses, sold a few businesses, moved to Berlin, 
um, set up a company called FinLeap, um, where we were basically an expert in building businesses. So we were able to set up quite a large number of financial technology companies, including a bank, an insurance broker, an invoice finance company, and a few others. But um, to slow down a bit, this is where um, an epiphany occurred to me. At this time, when I was in Berlin, I was without my wife and kids. They were in Brussels at the time. And um, I realized that uh, they were getting too accustomed to me just being there every other weekend. And I didn't like that. I was missing out on my kids growing up. I tried to persuade them to move to Berlin. My wife said, no, not good for her career. I, uh, she said, move to Brussels. I said, no, not good for my career. So we were gonna move back to, to London, actually. I talked it through with my partners in, in Berlin and everything was fine. I would sell my shares back, but then an interesting opportunity came up to, or I was exposed more so to Luxembourg. And I said to my wife, what do you think of Luxembourg? And she said, well, the EIB here has been trying to headhunt me for quite a few years. I said, why don't you go and have a chat with them? And um, again, we ended up moving here. And I came here actually originally to set up a, a new digital depository bank. But that's what brought us here. Sorry, it's quite a long story, but you did ask. Sorry. I did ask. It's a very long, it's a very interesting uh, story. So, so I'm really curious to, to know, clearly Fred Goodwin isn't one of the people that inspired you in your career, but was there a leader that you ever worked for that really inspired you and helped you along your own journey? Yes, there was. I think he taught me a lot in terms of leadership, um, in terms of the importance of people in, in business and, and, and what incentivizes people and what motivates them to give their best. Um, if I may name him, his name is James Sinclair. He was my my boss and uh, when not my boss, my mentor at EBS Dealing Resources. Mm. Um, and he was really inspiring in the way that he, he managed his team. And I think the critical lesson I learned from him and the way I say it to my team is that when we do great things, the, the credit goes to the individual team member. It's all down to them. When somebody screws up, that's my fault. That's what I deal with, right? That's why I'm there. That just makes individuals feel you know, empowered. It makes them feel as though they're, they're achieving things and that they're being showcased and that they're, you know, there's a belief in them, right? Mm -hmm. But yet with a protective layer around them. Um, and, and that I found particularly inspiring from James. Fascinating. So, so you know, you've lived in all of these places, the UK, New York, Tokyo, Singapore, Bali, Berlin and Brussels. Um, have you had to adapt your leadership style depending on um, the environment which you were working in? Not really adapt the leadership style. I think the adaptation comes more in dealing with people above you, um, as stakeholders and peers and customers, really. Mm -hmm. I think be it that sometimes it takes uh, a little while for team members, depending on which country you're talking about, to get used to that style. But I think we all have similar traits in terms of what motivates and inspires us. And that's what I see my job as, as a leader. Smart people are all over the place. They're not difficult to find. Finding the right people uh, and then motivating them to give their best. That's what really, to me, is the role of the leader. And so I think we're all generally as a lot of the organizational behavior shows in itself and the experiments show, motivated by very similar things. Um, and so I, I haven't really had to change much as to how I manage people. Mm. And, and, and so what do you think are the most important traits that have brought you your own um, success, Nazir? 
Uh, I think for me, it's it's an openness and continue uh, openness to learn and continuous learning is is critical. I know what I know. I have uh, very few conclusions and many many hypotheses. Um, but I'm always wanting to listen and learn from others that have more experience and expertise. And I think that will always be the case. I think sometimes it's a little shocking to people that, you know, uh, when they see my background, younger people sometimes think, well, you, you should know everything. And no, I don't. Uh, and I'm always open about that. I think the other key element in terms of what's important to me or my traits for leadership is just a drive, a passion, a belief and a, and a, and a desire to, to, to having done something good and positive for the planet for before mm-hmm. I depart, if I depart, who knows? <laughs> we have, who knows what technology will bring, Nazir? Oh, who yes. Knows, well, that's a whole other discussion. I can talk about longevity for hours as well. <laughs> so, so let's get a little bit contentious now. I know that you're very passionate about financial services, but what do you think is holding the development of financial services back? I mean, I think it boils down to one very simple point, and that is a complete lack of vision. I have a discussion quite regularly. I guess it's a bit of a tease um, to relay some of the frustration I have and to make a point. When I'm speaking with CEOs of financial institutions, I ask them somewhere in a conversation, I say, what are the greatest companies on the planet at the moment? And without any question, they'll say the big techs, right? Mm -hmm. And I say, what has made them the greatest companies on the planet? And they'll say, because they're technology companies. And I stop them there and I say, no, that's not why the greatest companies on the planet. They're the greatest companies on the planet because the likes of Bill Gates, Jack Ma, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Steve Jobs, 15, 20 years ago had a vision for Mm. the future. And they have worked towards that vision. They have inspired others to work towards that vision. They looked at the future and what the future would bring. Even if at the time it wasn't quite right, they, they, you know, Steve Jobs suffered a lot in the early part of his career. He was even fired, right? Because it wasn't going well but they stuck to their belief um, and drove towards that vision. And that's what makes the companies great. And I don't see anyone like that in financial services, be it in European banking, Asian banking, or American banking. They're more fixated on quarterly earnings. They're fixated on what's happening uh, today, tomorrow. To some degree, I have some sympathy with them because there is a lot of pressure, particularly in Europe, from regulatory policy and monetary policy at the European level. But that should be more the job of the COO and the CFO. The CEO is supposed to be a visionary and inspire people to, to drive forward and to make great companies. It's their job is to essentially listen to the music and predict when the music will stop playing, when it will slow down, when it will speed up. Mm. Um, It's not to worry about compliance issues on a daily basis. Right. Yeah. And that's what troubles me about financial services and why I see, particularly in Europe, it it's not in a good place. Mm. Mm. Are we in a recession? Nazia? Uh, to me, yes. Um, I mean, the economics may, I haven't looked actually for a while, but the economic uh, may, may be showing otherwise. But I, the, I've always noticed that a leading indicator of, of recession is usually when the banks start firing people. Um, and that started happening um, with some acceleration sort of mid-2019, early 2019. 
um, but there's a limit to how many people they can fire and how much budget they can slash before they reach uh, a minimal um, and their return on equity is diabolical, right? Um, it's just over 6% in Western Europe across financial institutions. This is not sustainable. Um, they have to look towards technology to drive future efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so, so other than vision, Nazir, what skills do you think are needed by financial services leaders in the future? I think more openness and transparency. I've never understood why leadership decisions. Now, we do understand within financial services, there's elements of Chinese walls and secrecy on customer information, data, trading information, etc. But in terms of business, I've never quite understood why things need to be kept away from teams. I mean, it harbors mistrust and is demotivating. And I think quite the opposite, that driving trust in a changing environment, which is critical, and, and faith in decisions that are being made at, at the leadership level can only be harbored by being open and transparent with your employees. Um, so I think that's absolutely critical. And I think will also help to drive what I see as a core fundamental for change and, uh, in financial services, which is culture, cultural change. Yeah. Um, banks need to change the way they operate in terms of their culture because they are no longer the sexy beasts that they used to be 20 years ago where every graduate in the world wants to go work for them. In fact, quite the opposite. Very Absolutely. few graduates from top universities want to work at a financial institution anymore. Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely speaking my language. I published an article today, why our kids don't want to be bankers. You know, what's your view on, on the whole talent issue in financial services? Well, it's, it's, a, it's genuinely a big problem. We've actually sought over the past year in particular to implement a load of initiatives for Luxembourg around talent and reskilling. Um, there is a brain drain going on at both ends, right? At the graduates, the best and the brightest no longer want to go to financial institutions. I mean, where 15 years ago, the best talents at the business schools went to all the big banks, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, etc. Uh, Goldman Sachs still manages to hold its own. It's a very special institution. But now, if you go to any of the top business schools around the world, Stanford, uh, or let's actually focus more on the sort of finance-orientated ones like Harvard, like um, um, Columbia, like London, school, uh, London Business School, where I went, um, the graduates don't want to go into finance anymore. They want to go and work for the big techs. Google is the biggest recruiter on campus at London Business School. London Business School is yeah. always a finance-orientated institution. Mm -hmm. um, servicing the city of London, but now it's the likes of Google, Amazon, and Facebooks that are taking the, the creme de la creme, right? So why can't a bank be sexy, Nazir? Oh, don't ask me that question. I think they can be. Um, I mean, there's an excuse, you know, bit we're heavily regulated, therefore we have constraints, etc., etc. It's absolute nonsense. I mean. Again, there's an element here of, of cultural change, but there's no reason why working within a highly regulated environment can't be fun and energizing. It's about partly down to leadership, but it's also down to the environment. I mean, simple things like just boosting up the workplace, I mean, can create, you know, leagues of more motivation than walking into a dull gray office with banks of desks, right? You know, the, the excuse often given, as I said, is this thing around we're a regulated business, therefore we can't be fun. 
And I make the point that, you know, Amazon is a, achieves what it achieves, which is a highly process-driven business. It's mm. meticulous about process. Process is essentially akin to regulation. Yet Amazon is a company that people want to go and work for. You look at the new challenger banks that have arisen around the UK and across Europe. And, you know, I set up, a, helped set up a bank in Berlin, Solaris Bank. People want to go and work for those banks. There's no reason why it can't be fun and energizing. And fun doesn't mean people aren't being productive. I think fun is a core element of driving productivity. Absolutely. People, want to, people need to want to wake up in the morning and come into work. And I think when you look at my team and people I've worked with over the years, and myself included, we are energized to come into work every day because we feel we're going to achieve things right and there's nothing more motivating than that we're going to have fun and we're going to achieve things and drive change mm. and i don't understand why a bank can't be the same mm, absolutely so books on leadership do you have a favorite book on leadership or a favorite book on anything that really inspires you um, that you like to share with the listeners sure i mean the, the greatest read it's not about leadership in particular um but my, the greatest book I think I've ever read is um, Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People. Mm, it's um, a classic. I, I think it's a classic. I, uh, I buy every person that I employ a copy of that book and tell them to read it. Um, I think it's great. I have to admit, though, maybe slightly different, more autobiographical, I guess, is um, uh, Warren Buffett's snippets of his letters to his shareholders. I think it's a fascinating read. I think that man's an absolute genius. Mm, he is. He is. He's a wonderful man. And I, I don't know if you saw the documentary about Bill Gates on Netflix talking to Warren Buffett and, and their own dialogues. It's quite fascinating. It is. I mean, there's two great leaders there. Absolutely. That man, that man really understands business. And as I say, he's a lot of his focus is on management teams and people. Right? Yeah. So Nasir, you have a couple of kids, I understand. How old are they? Oh, my boys are 11 and 13. Yeah. And uh, how has technology um, affected them, their upbringing, who they are? Oh, I think it's affecting all kids in the Western world at the moment is this constant battle with screens, mobile devices, Xboxes, Playstations, etc. I think it's just a, it's, it's a never ending, um, let's use a polite word, debate with children <laughs> about how much time they spend on these devices. Um, I mean, they've been brought up in the world of, of tablets, right? I mean, I still remember when my oldest was, you know, one years old or two years old, and I told him to go and switch off the TV. He was a bit sleepy and tired, and he went over and started tapping on the screen, right? Mm -hmm. um, negative consequences of which the working environment will need to adapt, and it has to adapt for this, is the, there's plenty of evidence and, and research that's been conducted that shows that the attention span of our children is significantly shorter than we are. Um, this then con drives my concern around education and the lack of, th the fact that education at primary and secondary level across Europe in particular is not preparing our children adequately for their future in any way and is not in any way fit for purpose. I do not understand why my boys are getting firstly taught the same things as I was when I was at school, but actually more critically, why they are being taught the same things in the same way. 
I do oh, Nazia, do you know what? We could we could make this podcast an hour and a half long if we got onto that subject. Oh, I just I just um, had an interview, which is one of the most enjoyable interviews I did with one of the Luxembourg newspapers, the Luxembourg Journal, where they didn't want to talk about finance or technology. It was about my views on education, because I have mm-hmm. given some quite uh, hard hitting speeches about this. I mean, I, I use one particular example. There's many I could give, but I mean, why does my son? need to know the 28 EU member states when they ascended to the EU and their capital cities off by heart and have to regurgitate that in an exam on which he is graded that will count towards a final grade. If he does badly, he is punished. So, you know, this whole legacy and we talk about um, learning from mistakes, learning from failure. I mean, Europe's never going to get over the hang up because they teach teach the opposite to our children. Failure is bad, right? Mm. Children get punished if they fail. How are we ever going to get over the fact that the greatest lessons we learn are through making mistakes? Not that we want to make mistakes, but sometimes they do happen. And we should be accepting of those mistakes and move on. Whereas, I mean, it's not so bad in the UK, at least they progress through school. But in Europe, you're held back a year if you fail your year, right? Yeah, yeah. That's horrible punishment for a young kid. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact is, and we're seeing this particularly with boys, right? And nobody seems to address this in the whole gender debate, um, it may be business on the other side. But, you know, when you look at the UK school results these days, you know, the Evening Standard still publishes its league tables, which I fondly look at because you know, I'm quite proud of my old school that I went to when I was growing up. But you now look at the top 10, they're all girls' schools, right? Yeah. Boys are, the gap to boys is widening. Now, every piece of data suggests that on average, um, we can talk distributions at some other com- conversation, but on average, intelligence is exactly the same between men and women. Why are boys failing to perform at exams relative to girls? And the gap is widening. Something is wrong, mm. right? Something, something, is de- is, something is definitely wrong. Definitely. So that's wrong. just one element. Sorry, you've got me onto a very passionate subject. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't understand education. I don't understand what they're teaching and why they're teaching and what they're yeah. teaching them. It yeah. just makes no sense to me. Absolutely. So I've got a couple of final questions for you. So um, um, the purpose of the loft, if you are explaining what you do to my mum, who has no knowledge of financial services or fintech, um, how would you explain the mission of the loft and what you do? I think it's relatively simple. I see our mission as uh, ensuring the future competitiveness of Luxembourg's financial services sector with a focus on digitalization and financial technology. Very good. And so my final big question, you mentioned some of the greats earlier on in this podcast, Nazir. We talked about Bill Gates, we talked about Steve Jobs, Elon Musk and Jack Ma. Which of these great leaders do you admire the most and why? I think it has to be Bill Gates. Um, I mean, let me start with why not Steve Jobs, um, because I think a lot of people see Steve Jobs as an incredibly inspiring character. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is when you delve, delve into his leadership style, he was, a, he was an autocrat. And I'm not a believer in autocratic management. As I say, a big focus of mine is on, on learning, on participation. Um, and Bill Gates was much more focused on participative management, working with his people. He created vision. He, he drove decisions, but based upon the input of everyone. And I think that's what anyone at Microsoft would tell you during his era, that right down to the lowest 
level of employee, they all appreciated Bill Gates and his openness to everyone and his willingness to learn and to digest and listen to people, right? Mm. Um, and I think that's something I greatly admire. Very good. Nazir Zubari, CEO of The Loft, Luxembourg. Thank you very much for being our guest on Flex in the City today. Thank you very much for having me, Rachel.